Welcome to another exciting episode of The Nuclear View, a weekly podcast of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to think deterrence. The views of the guests are their own. Welcome back to another episode of The Nuclear View, a podcast of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies where we always remind you, think deterrence. Now, last week was a busy week for the United States and for that little island, dare I say, nation of Taiwan, where Tsai Ing-wen, the president of Taiwan, was passing through the United States. It was not a visit. She was on her way to actually visit Guatemala and Belize, and she stopped in New York and then made a second stop uh, in California, in the Los Angeles area, where she was able to meet with folks and went to the Reagan Library. I've been there myself. It's a great place. And she was able to meet with Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, as well as some other members of Congress. And of course, as many of you already may know, China was not pleased. The People's Republic was not pleased with that and launched three days of exercises towards Taiwan. So with that in mind, Curtis McGiffin, Jim Petrosky joining me, we're going to have a discussion about the utility and particularly the deterrence aspects of President Tsai's visit to the United States. Gentlemen, as always, it's good to have you on the Nuclear View. Thank you, Adam. Nice to be here. Yeah. So so, so what was your take on Curtis? I, I see you there as well, but I, I'm I'm curious, what was Jim's what was your take on Sying Wynn's visit? Well, Adam, thank you. Yeah, uh, so First of all, I went uh, back when we started preparing for the show because we wanted to talk and tie together deterrence with an activity. And I went through every deterrence theory book that I could find and every article I could find. And I could not find a single place where it said a visit or a travel schedule was a deterrent. Um, so you find deterrence in some strange places sometimes. And, you know, whether it is a deterrent or it destabilizes and becomes, you know, counter to deterrence, uh, rather interesting. But, you know, everybody's, if you look at all the articles that have come out so far, they all talk about, well, what was the action that, uh, as a reaction of China to the overall uh, Taiwan uh, president size visit? Um, my first step in trying to think about this is what if she didn't visit with anyone here? What would have been that effect? And that's the first step before I can even think about what has happened. Because I figured that China was going to do something regardless. Um, eventually, we've been talking about uh, Taiwan and China for quite some time. And China's uh, concerns about Taiwan uh, and how they uh, uh, how they want to bring them into the fold, so to speak. And yet this visit, if she had come here with no one to see her, where would there have been a deterrent 
anywhere if the United States had simply thumbed their nose at that visit. And so that's my initial take on this. Uh, how could that possibly even be considered uh, for anything other than it has to have a visit? Yeah. Curtis? Well, <clears throat> welcome all. Uh, Jim, good to see you. Adam, good to see you. Um, well, I think it's fair to say that President Tsai has taken her visit to Paris off the travel itinerary. Would you not agree? <laughs> no, no meetings with Emmanuel Macron? Given Macron's kowtowing in Beijing, uh, and I mean that both literally and figuratively. Uh, so, um, very interesting. Um, you know, when President Zelensky speaks to every nation's legislature, uh, uh, you know, various uh, parliaments and, uh, and leaders around the world begging for support for the, for his war of independence, right. For the, to fight the Russian, uh, uh, invasion. For some reason, it seems to be a problem when president Tsai is literally almost doing the same thing, but you know, sort of preemptively, right? She's trying to remind the world, hey, we're a democracy of 23 million people. We're a stable country. We contribute to the world's economy and its technology. Their commodity is the microchip. And uh, and and she's trying to get the world to get behind them. They're facing an existential threat, literally, right? I keep saying that sure. word today. I'm sorry about that. They are facing an existential threat. And, uh, and, and so their, their desperation meter is beginning to peg and, uh, and they're just looking for a lot of hugs, right? A lot of comfort as they prepare for this. Well, you know, I guess as I think about Taiwan, you know, it's a, Taiwan is in part, the challenge here was, was created by, you know, the, the Guomindang and their aspirations to retake China. If uh, Chiang Kai-shek had said, yeah, we, we lost the war. Uh, we're going to go to Taiwan and make Taiwan an independent country. Then we wouldn't, I don't think we'd have this problem right now, but because Chiang wanted to retake the, uh, retake the mainland and sort of had his set his sight set on that for 40 years, we have this problem because historically, Taiwan has not been a long time province of mainland China. For those, I mean, that are familiar with Taiwan's history, it was the Kangxi Emperor, who was one of the, you know, one of the the Manchu emperors, said that Taiwan is not part of China. You know, it's been ruled by the Dutch. It was, you know, it was ruled, you know, it's got a large population of indigenous folks who are not ethnically Han Chinese. They have their own dialect. You know, the the Chinese, when, when the mainland, when the Manchus had some control of Taiwan, it was only, you know, a few of the towns along the coast, Keelung and what is now, you know, Taipei. They never controlled the whole island. You know, they they've, it's just been an island that was the problem was created by the outcome of the Chinese civil war. 
And so I wonder, as we contemplate, you know, how best to handle it, and as Beijing says, you know, we're, we're going to take our province back, when in, historically that, that's just not true. And, you know, there's, Taiwan has, you know, sort of a patron saint guy named Koshinga, and he was half Chinese and half Japanese. So, you know, it's this sort of melting pot of cultures and peoples and, and it's never been truly part of, of China. And so the idea that we may see the next world war over this island and the fact that China would risk its growth over, over an island that has really never been part of it is something that I'm sort of scratching my head wondering why the the Chinese won't let it go. Curtis? Yeah, so uh, Jim, allow me to cut in line here and, and just add. So I hey, pulled... there's no line here, you know. <laughs> so uh, Miles Yu uh, put out an, a piece here about two days ago. He served as a senior China policy uh, advisor for Secretary Pompeo in the Trump administration, and he laid out the four reasons why China is so obsessed with Taiwan. And I just thought I would mention these very, very quickly. The first one is, is that subsuming Taiwan is central to their political legitimacy, at least in the eyes of, of the Communist Party. And the second is that they're animated by a delusion that China is stronger than the United States and its allies. It's a sense of braggadocio that they want to be, they want to show their prowess as they ascend into the leadership of the world, if you will. And the third is that Taiwan's success in democratization uh, may have a destabilizing effect on mainland China, and they want to squelch that. And then the last one is that, um, that the obsession motivates their internal politics and enables their diplomats, coalesces the, the people and the process, I think, of the nation. And so, uh, Adam, maybe those four things help you. Uh, you can agree or disagree, but I just thought I'd share that since you mentioned it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I think that's by and large pretty accurate. Uh, but it's, I'm not saying it's inherently rational, but, you know, we, we don't fear honor and interest are not inherently rational drivers of, you know, international relations and what countries do. Jim, what would, what were you going to add? Yeah. Yeah. I was looking at this and I made a comment earlier to Curtis. I said, I, I, well, I went back and looked at some, some articles from, uh, a year ago and how everyone was looking at this, this, this tension between China and Taiwan and how the articles all were written that, you know, China is just a little bit blustery on this and are just trying to, you know, uh, saber rattle for the sake of saber rattling. But if you look at recent articles, I'm talking just in the last few days, especially now that China has been taking some more very formal actions and activities against Taiwan, those articles have changed from, from just saber rattling to, you know, what happens if a war breaks out? And I understand because activities are occurring that way, but I have always looked at this, uh, you know, and looking at it from the, from the eyes of a, of a reader of the news as it comes out. I certainly am not in the Intel rooms or anything else like that, where they may have background in this. But my view was that China is growing in military strength, has a very fast growing Navy, has a very strong uh, military uh, capability. 
Um, they are testing, you know, I, I look at this as testing out what you can get away with. What can I push? How can I push and how far can I push? So I get a push back and that is valuable. You know, we talked before about deterrence, you know, how many do you need? When do you begin to produce fear in your, in your adversary? When do you produce a reaction to your adversary? And I see this in many ways that I said about the balloon, the balloon was provocative and it was probing. And I look at this as provocative and probing. How far can we push and who's going to back down? And I see this action as that. And we see that even in the activities of today, where a lot of the actions that China is still doing are what one would call those soft actions. I mean, obviously they're not you know, launching anything at Taiwan, at least I don't think so at this point. You know, military activities, aggressive economic activities, aggressive, a lot of stuff publicly and internationally that's out there that is driving opinion, but short of any action, it would be considered a deliberate direct action. What can I get away with? That's what I'm seeing. You know, this is part of Deng Xiaoping said, you know, hide your capabilities, bide your time in the 1980s. And by and large, China has been doing that. But, you know, there's a there's a theory in, in American international relations called power transition theory, which says that there's this very unstable period when a great power that's in decline and a rising power are close in parity. And and the, either the rising power says, you know, it's time for me to knock off the old power or the old power says, man, I better take them out now before they surpass me. And that this is the dangerous period. And it seems to me that China thinks that we're sort of in that period now. And if you've ever read, you know, there's two really great books that I would recommend for all the listeners to understand in, in the first China strategic culture. And that's, you know, Alistair Ian Johnson, political scientist, wrote a great book, which it's now 25 years ago, written in the 90s on Chinese strategic culture. And essentially, he said that when China's weak, they appease. When China's has parity, they act defensively. And then when China is stronger, they act offensively. And then Rush Doshi has a great book that's a new book. It's came out in the last year or two uh, called The Long Game that talks about China's strategy. And so what we're seeing, I think, with Taiwan in particular is China is leaving that period, you know, this period of hide your capability, bide your time. And is now in a period where, like you said, Jim, where they feel like they can be assertive and they are pushing to see how the United States responds. And they want to obviously discourage the United States. And remember, these are second and third order effects. Who else is watching how they handle what the United States does? Because if the Americans back down or if they react strongly when the Americans uh, show support for sighing when what might the Guatemalans, the, you know, the Bel Belizeans, the, you know, you pick a country that isn't the United States 
and doesn't necessarily have the the power of the United States, how will they handle? Because the number of countries that recognize Taiwan has has dwindled. You know, it's it's dwindled, and there are no great powers that recognize Taiwan anymore. And so, for the you know the government in Beijing, they thought you know we're we're going to have this handled. We're going to pull every every ally, every partner that Taiwan has away. And then this is sort of an about the United States is making what amounts to an about face on Taiwan. And so I wonder, is that about face? And this is for you, Curtis, or you, Jim, that we seem to be making as we've, you know, uh, the Speaker Pelosi went to Taipei. Now McCarthy's met with her. She's come here now. Is that a deterrent for China because the Chinese are saying, well, listen, uh, they're getting awfully close to the Americans. The Americans might just be willing to defend Taiwan. And that that's sort of the question I toss out to y'all. Well, you know, I think that this fundamentally comes down to is the question of strategic ambiguity, uh, which is, you know, really built itself around the Taiwan question and strategic Ambiguity it, uh, really works best when both nations are okay with being deterred, uh, and, and so because that affects the calculation, right? Um, it, under the concept of strategic ambiguity, China is supposed to consider the possibility of a U.S. response to an attack or an invasion, just the possibility. But how do you calculate, right, that vague possibility? And that's supposed to somehow present, you know, wiggle room for American diplomats. I think um, we have to uh, think about here is that, um, you know, is how much risk, right, in this political strategic ambiguity is America willing to uh, uh, to accept? Because this risk not only involves for the potential for conventional conflict in the Eastern Pacific, but it also uh, the very direct threat, right, uh, to the continental United States, given China's ICBM forces, right? And so the deterrent advantage does not necessarily imply military dominance, to your point, Adam. And I think as we see this, it's really measured by that risk tolerance level. And when we see a nation like, like China, which is highly motivated and risk, uh, and risk uh, tolerant, uh, those are the hardest to deter, right? And so I think this is where we're looking at, it, and it, it plays on this asymmetric threat that we've talked about in previous podcasts. That essentially, Thai, uh, that China cares more about taking Taiwan than the, than the West may care about Taiwan remaining a free democracy. And so I think those are some of the things that are are part of the challenge there. But here's the big crux, and I'm going to quote. The great Keith Payne here, um, when we start talking about strategic ambiguity in the sense that uh, if the state seeking to deter, which is us, right, is not manifestly dominant in its deterrent power position relative to its opponent, China, there is no reason whatsoever to believe that it will be any less driven to caution by the uncertainty of the will of the opponent. In other words, as we, if, as China perceives American weakness 
either in capability or will. Strategic ambiguity will fail, and it will be harder and harder to deter the ultimate goal of of attempting to uh, to take Taiwan. Yeah, Curtis, so that very interesting. Um, by the way, Curtis, I'll say you've. I, I wasn't sure whether you're going to go with strategic ambiguity in this uh, in this cast, or whether you're going to say bringing about enough fear in your enemy that they're deterred. Since I think you've said that in every podcast, so I'm glad you stuck to form. But you yeah. are, yeah, that's right. But you are dead on. Um, and and Adam, I, I want to go back to what you had said because I I didn't realize. Um, that uh, Taiwan was not recognized by anyone else as, uh, aside from the United States. And it gives me pause to think this is a very deliberate then, a very, very deliberate uh, move by China to uh, take an affront directly to the United States to look at our sort of unfettered, unconnected view uh, on on this aggressive action and you know you look at you look at all the articles that talk about what if a war were to break out and the answer sort of interestingly is china loses taiwan loses japan loses the united states loses i mean sort of in terms of in terms of uh, great value so what what really is gained aside from the aggressive affrontation you know affront whatever you're going to call it um, with the united states and the hubris, I'll use Curtis's words, the hubris that you get as a country to say, we did it. And so that, that's very interesting. How do, you, how do you deter that hubris? Interesting. So let me add to that, uh, Jim, because it's a fantastic observation. So I'm going to skip the line here while uh, it's for Adam here. Uh, give him a chance to rest his voice. Um, <laughs> I would throw at this, this, this is not only about Taiwan, but this is about about upsetting um, uh, the uh, the international uh, rules based order, right? And so, it, it, w- w- what I think Taiwan is looking to do is is to upset that rules based order that has been established since since World War II, which is designed to do four things, right? Protect sovereignty preserve peace, and curb excess use of power. That's the first one. The second one is to enable international trade and investment. The third is to set international standards related to health, transport, telecommunications, and so forth that that underpins the economic process, right? And then the fourth one is to establish norms that underpin universal human rights and the rule of law. And if you're in a situation like China where you want to usurp these rules, um, then the one way to do it is to actually violate all of these at the same time. Uh, and, uh, and so I think the ultimate goal, yes, they want to reunify Taiwan out of whatever hubris that they're uh, living under. But uh, I think that goal is even bigger than that. And that is to reset the international order in one that, if nothing else, at the very least, gives China equal recognition as a dominant world power. Isn't that resetting of the world order a similar argument that we've made for Putin and his activities? I mean, isn't this like, like both along the same lines? Well, given that they're working together, that, that does have some mutual influence. I think Putin, 
Putin uh, wants a seat at the table, not necessarily to reset the table. I think Beijing wants to reset the table. Yeah, I, you know, it's it's an interesting question. And my fear is that we are, and just let me digress for a second. So there are about, I think the the current number, 17 nations that have diplomatic relations with Taiwan. The U.S. does not have a formal diplomatic recognition of Taiwan. You know, we don't have an embassy uh, in Taiwan, and most countries do not. After, you know, after we shifted recognition from Taiwan, from the Republic of China to uh, the PRC, the People's Republic, anytime there's a people's or a democratic in the name of the country, it's a communist country. (laughs) So just keep that in mind. But, you know, so we don't have it, but there are about 17 countries, I think, is the number that do. And they're mostly, you know, smaller countries. And the Chinese have been working actively Mm -hmm. to peel them off. And they have successfully. Many of them in Latin America. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Yeah, in Micronesia and elsewhere. And I, I, my big fear is that Taiwan is... And and I you know I wonder if if President Tsai sort of has this has a similar view, is Taiwan in the fight for Taiwan and Taiwanese independence, the inflection point, in which if you think almost if there's an inflection point in battle in which, this you know when perhaps the you know the the sides two sides are fighting, and it's not clear whether one side will win or not. And that something happens in the battle where one side says, oh, my God, we're going to lose. And then you almost see a rout. Because and it's not that they're getting, you know, massacred. Uh, They could be holding their own and performing well, but it's the mental and cognitive view that we're not going to win that turns, you know, parity or even potentially success into a massive defeat. And I wonder if there are many countries in Asia and around the world that are looking at the U.S. and China and Taiwan in particular, and they're wondering, you know, is the United States the declining power? And will this almost like a snowball effect that couples to where we're seen as the losing side and then therefore you see people jumping ship? And they won't just jump ship on us. They'll, you know, so we could potentially lose our allies in Korea. You know, in Japan, we've heard that the Australians have concerns. We, you know, there's there's a lot of concern that this could snowball and that the United States could become a power in the Western Hemisphere only. And that's that's sort of where I think the United States has to stand its ground. You can't leave 27 million people, you know, out to become slaves of a, of an oppressive communist government, you sort of have to fight for them. If you're going to be, as the United States has been called, I mean, Reagan said, we are the shining city upon a hill. We are the new Jerusalem. We are the beacon of light in the world. And so if that's going to be true, then where do we, where do we make our stand? And I sort of think it, it has to be Taiwan because that is that is where, you know, the the voice of freedom and liberty 
must take a stand against what is clearly the most oppressive country. You know, I mean, North Korea is probably more oppressive, but China is, you know, a highly repressive regime with a slightly better economic system than the Soviet Union. And so I, I don't know, guys, am I wrong? Am I sort of off track on this? Well, I, I, I think, I think that, uh, secretary of defense would disagree with you back in November of 22, uh, secretary Austin said, China is our pacing challenge. We won't call them a threat, but a challenge that is the relationship we believe we have, uh, a competitive relationship, not a contentious relationship. I wonder if you would make that statement again today or not. Um, and, uh, and that would be, uh, would be interesting. Um, but I want to jump as we're running out of time here over to the actual exercise that occurred in reaction to president size visit and dip, uh, diplomatic effort and this three day exercise that occurred. And in this three day exercise, uh, on the first day, China, um, uh, demonstrated its ability to mobilize forces to control the air, sea, and information spaces. And on the second day, uh, they uh, practice uh, precision strikes on key military and political targets in Taiwan. And on the third day, they rehearsed an island blockade on the East Coast designed to prevent any sort of supply or, uh, or intervening of alliances coming from the West. This is very interesting in three short days what they, what they, what they completed. Um, and, and it gives us a little glimpse into where they might go. It also begins to begin this process now of, uh, of normalization where we sort of become immune and numb to these behaviors, these penetrations, and that one day they won't be exercising anymore. It will become the actual attack, yeah. right? This insidious uh, uh, type of effort. And that's something that, that uh, concerns me as well. This kind of aggressive behavior uh, is is a warm up, if you will. Yeah, isn't that isn't that though very similar to what we've seen in North Korea? Oftentimes, they you know, North Korea goes out, they fire some missiles, they practice some exercises, and they do something very similar. It's like one of these days, it's not going to be you know uh, an exercise; they're just going to move. And so you have that same kind of activity. The question is, does does Taiwan see this as being a a true threat um, or is it still just staging to build a, an action or a reaction? And that to me, from a deterrent standpoint is the difficult calculus that I haven't been able to wrap my head around. Is it again, hubris just to get a reaction to see how far they can go. You know, I sit back on that cause I really believe that happened because I, I think the way China operates that if they felt that this was easy, schmeasy, we're done why haven't they done it already? And I haven't seen well, that yet. That's the issue yeah. I see that I, I, I look at from a deterrent standpoint, Curtis. Right. Well, I would say there's, there's one last thing that must occur uh, before they will actually do it. And we hear a lot of speculation about when will it happen? And uh, you know, general uh, the AMC commander, general, I think Minahan yeah. wrote in his memo 2025, we've heard uh, the former, I think CPAC fleet commander say 27, uh, et cetera. And they're all sort of, uh, you know, educated guesses. And, I'm, and any one of those could be right. Um, uh, I'll tell you when the right time is. All right. So you get out your, uh, 
you know, your opportunity is, just, you know, you're going to want to sell your stocks at some point here. When we start seeing those two, those 330 missile silos that are being built out in the Gobi Desert, when they become operational and they are loaded with weapons, that's when they're ready. Because that's the missing piece in order to do this is they must be able to deter, i.e. coerce America, hold America at risk with their ICBMs to prevent us from coming to the aid and, and projecting that risk, that risk I talked about. Do we have the appetite for that risk in that escalation will rise uh, because we will not have the ability um, unless we pre-deploy forces in some manner to be able to wrestle with that theater uh, nuclear uh, low yield risk in order to control escalation. And if we don't do that, the only option we will have are the big are the big ones. And they have the big ones too once those are ready to go. So that's my guess uh, as we look through that. And, you know, we've heard stories about the porcupine strategy for Taiwan and, and other ways to create, you know, to make Taiwan harder to take and even, even harder to keep. Um, and I think the, that deterrence by denial aspect is real. But I think what we also need to do, and I've not heard anybody talk about this. So um, I'm claiming the intellectual property on this one <laughs> is that we... That is that what we should be doing as a nation is we should be coupling any action to defend Taiwan to place at risk the islands in the South China Sea. That China needs to understand that that risk is greater than just taking the Taiwanese prize, that they may actually lose other things elsewhere, including the islands of the South China Sea. And by building a coalition to support that argument with, with the nations in that South China Sea, they will force them to... De- uh, to look into different, uh, uh, you know, multi uh, uh, fronts, if you will, as well as increase the fear factor, Jim. We got to increase the fear factor. It's got to cost them more than just the forces that they're going to lose in the attempt to take Taiwan. I tell you, really, this gives me a fever. And the only cure for that fever <laughs> is a little more cowbell. Uh-oh. So, you know, we, I thought we'd get through an episode without any Saturday Night Live references, but uh, there it is. unfortunately I had to throw it there in at the 34th minute. And of course, we're out of time. Jim, did you have a quick, uh, uh, I know you're shaking your head and laughing, but. Did, yeah, maybe we should end it at the 33rd minute. <laughs> That's my answer. <laughs> no, I, one of the things that we didn't hit on, I, I and there's no time left to do it, but maybe for a future episode of uh, of the nuclear view is where does India stand in all this? And that might be a pressure point that is interesting. And I haven't seen it in any of the articles. So uh, something to think about because there's more than just us involved here. Um, and I think we need to look at that, but that's an interesting strategy. Curtis, I appreciate you, you bringing to the forefront that there are other players in this that, that need to happen or be involved. And that's my view on the, on the deterrent part is I always like going back to how do you stop it from happening and what should we be doing now to do that? And it just seems like it's unraveling in a way that China's calling the shots and maybe there's, you know, obviously more happening behind the scenes, but. That's a, that's my last minute take. I'll turn it over to Adam to put in the last word. He has the historic context, which I appreciate. And Curtis has the 
the theoretical and the uh, educational background. And I just like to throw my two cents in because I like to talk. So back to you, Adam. Well, as Jim mentioned, we are out of time. And that means we have reached the end of the nuclear view, which just like at the beginning of the show is a podcast of the National Institutes of Deterrence Studies, where we always encourage you to think deterrence. Thanks for listening, and we will see you on the next episode.